Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. Joining me today is internationally known speaker, social justice activist, and next-gen social impact consultant, Jamira Burley. Thank you so much for joining me, Jamira. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Absolutely. You know, I, I know you've been involved in activism for quite some time, and I've really enjoyed your voice on social media and then having met you through the Yahoo Allyship Pledge. And I know for me, activism kind of came into my life, I would say within the last few years, but like I've grown, like I grew up in a predominantly white uh, city. And I, even though I was very pro-black always, my parents were very much in, instilled those uh, values and, and those beliefs into us. But I would say in the last five years, it's really become a huge part of my trajectory in my life. So for you, was there anything specific in your personal journey that made you go into this line of work? Yeah, that's a really great question. And for me, it was it was an act of survival. Um, so I grew up in West Philadelphia. My claim to fame is that I went to the same high school as Will Smith. I love um, it. I just started I've saying West Philadelphia, born and raised. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, we've never met, but we walked the same halls at love different times. Um, and I grew up in the aftermath of the war on drugs and the crack epidemic. So it was very much an environment in which people, you know, wore hopelessness. I like to say that war, I don't like to say it, but they wore hopelessness like a winter coat, right? It was very much a part of their identity mm -hmm. because of the reality of violence and drugs and incarceration. And in 2005, I had, by then I had seen all 10 of my older brothers be in and out of incarceration, both mm -hmm. of my parents. But it was the year that my brother Andre, who was 20 years old, was shot and killed in Philadelphia that I think I, 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 to some extent, I removed the blinders of believing that, yes, these things seem normal, but normal didn't make it right. And I was almost challenged by the Black women in my life, the my principal and my counselor, who asked me a very direct question at 15, did I want to be a victim or did I want to um, be a survivor? And through that, I learned that I could use my voice, use my direct experiences to really push the narrative and to also create programs and access for other young people to be at the table when decisions about them are being made. So it was very much for me an act of survival. And over the last 17 years, um, it's now a part of my everyday life, my career, and how I choose to live from where I shop, who I date, to the organizations that I work for. Well, you don't look like you've been doing anything for 17 years because you barely look like you're oh, you in your 20s. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, Black Don't Crack is a true thing. I know. I'm coming up on my Jesus year, so it's coming. I love it's it. Coming. I love it. I love it. So you're the current head of engagement and skills for the Global Business Coalition for Education. Yes. So what drew you to want to work with youth specifically, and what is it about the next gen um, community and that specifically is really encouraging for you? Because I feel very encouraged by them, but I'd love to hear from you why you love working with that generation. I think it was how I started my career. So it was very much working with my peers to train them, to encourage them, to empower them to be a part of the process. And then I, I almost moved from being a youth activist living in that age range to now being an advocate for youth. And a lot of it is because, you know, young people are our most vulnerable. They have no choice on the communities, the zip codes the types of families that they're born into. And we kind of throw them out into the world and assume that they're all going to be able 
to reach their full potential, despite the barriers and the roadblocks that we as a society create in the process for them. And so I've always been encouraged because, you know, young people have always been at the forefront of change despite these barriers. And for me, I get enjoyment or I feel empowered when I can, you know, bring young people into spaces and places that were never created for them um, and let them show the world just how much they know and understand and how much they have the ability to really design what the world should look like. And no one should be speaking on behalf of them um, when you have them in a space and place where they can speak on behalf of themselves. So yeah, I like every time I turn on the news or like on my social media feed, because I follow a lot of young people, I'm just like, oh, I can retire now. These young people are going to get... We may not see the promised land in my lifetime, but I'm convinced that they're going to get it in their lifetime. Yeah. And it's, it's it's really empowering that for oftentimes millennials, we created the technology, the spaces, the the we're off for the next generation, I think, to do the real work or do more of the real work. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think what's so discouraging is that you see a lot of these people in the older generation say things like, oh, these young kids don't know what they're talking about. It's like, but they are literally the future. So why are you discouraging them from getting involved? I've never understood that mindset. Well, I think it is because we've been teaching each other and the world has taught us that there's a scarcity of opportunities, right? So I think oftentimes older folks will downplay the intelligence, the knowledge, the understanding of young people because they don't fear fear themselves of being replaced. Um, and also, I think it's a power grab, right? I, if we look at some of the best solutions that the world has created, it's been through intergenerational, interracial discussions and, and ideations and implementation. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it's a way for the elders to oftentimes hold more of the power and not yeah. feel like they have to listen to a generation that isn't, you know, that isn't conforming to the traditional norms of a political party or the social constraints of society, right? They see the world as it is versus as politicians like to dress it as. Yeah. It's almost like they're in denial too, that they're going to be gone soon and that other people have to take over. <laughs> like y'all are yeah, going to be I mean, here forever. <laughs> exactly. Like go off and never mind. <laughs> You're like, let me, let me, let me scale it back. <laughs> let me scale it back. It's Monday. I can't go off too far. Maybe Friday, but yes. Yeah, you're right. They forget one, they forget that they themselves were younger too, yes. that they wanted somebody to listen to them. And then as they get older, they, they get so, you know, their ego gets so big where they feel like they have all the answers and they don't have to listen to someone who may not have the pedigree right? The defined prestige pedigree that puts them at the same table as them. You know, I come from a family of educators. My mom was a uh, high school and college counselor for over 30 years. My sister is a fourth grade teacher still. And, you know, she's obviously currently been struggling because Those are the of superheroes. The, they're superheroes, truly, truly superheroes. But I, I want to know your views on what education is like in this country or just how it's perceived because I feel like there's just not enough emphasis on high quality education for the younger generation and I would love to know what you think needs to happen and what you would like to see this administration do in terms of education. That's such a great question and my first response is trash and I mean that in so so many ways. First of all if every the, I'm sure your listeners and you yourself might have an iPhone right or even if you have a smartphone in the last 10 years there's probably been 12 um, iterations of that one phone, right? The yeah. iPhone has had most 12 phones in the last 10 years. Our education system has not changed in the last 100 years. 
So we are literally training young people and teaching young people in an education system that does no longer exist. Like the society no longer exists. Young people are not going to be going into factories. They're not going to be working on a factory line, building certain technologies just because of the evolution of robotics and automation. And yet our education hasn't evolved. Data now says that out of the 1.8 billion young people, which is the largest youth population the world has ever seen, more than 50% of them are not ready for the jobs of the future. Oh, wow. So we are, we, wow. Are, we are creating an entire generation of young people who will not fully be able to participate in society and take advantage of the new opportunities in these, these developing industries. And so I think for any elected official, particularly the one that we're currently in, I think it's really important that we understand what is happening here in America and how we are not setting our children up to be able to not only compete with someone down the street, but also someone across the border where now so many opportunities are remote. And so it's about looking at how are we, so my organization, we put out a report with Deloitte Global a few, two years ago that looked at what were the skills needed for the fourth industrial revolution and how can the business community work with local governments to help close that gap? What we found is a lot of the skills beyond like technical skills and tech, um, you know, like robotics and, um, and coding is still important, but a lot of the skills that we're actually talking about are soft skills, are skills that we've actually taken out of the classroom over the last 100 years. So, right, critical thinking, arts and science, leadership development, problem solving, are all the skills that young people are going to need to be able to fully participate, but we've created robots to do these manual jobs that just doesn't exist. So I need need this administration to work with, I think, a... uh, um, both people in the private sector, people in the public sector, to really think about what are the jobs needed for the future? How can we transform our curriculum to meet those needs? And what external programs within our cities and our communities are going to um, enable for young people to take advantage of those opportunities? Because it's it, if we don't address it now, it's going to be very dire because yeah. industries are dying. Like the trucking industry, for example, like long haul trucking where many people receive their packages, they're expected over the next five years that 5 million of those jobs are going to disappear. So those are high paying jobs for low skill workers. And so what is it going to happen to all of those communities that depend on those type of economic, um, those economic um, insurgents back into their community? It's, yeah, so there's opportunities, but yeah. we got to do it now. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring up critical thinking is one of the things that has kind of been taken out of the school system because I, I just had this conversation recently that that, to me, is one of the things that really does separate, and I hate say this because I don't like to put labels on people, but separates liberals from conservatives is that there's just a lack of critical thinking. And I also think it comes from Christians being mostly in the conservative camp because critical thinking is not a uh, trait of the Christian community. And I think when people start to like, look at all of this on paper, it's all connected. <laughs> it's just you know, all connected. It's deliberate though, right? Our, oh, yeah. we have a very uneducated society. The vast majority of local papers are on an eighth grade reading level, mm. and all, which, and then we know that when young people, even from conservative communities go to go to college, they're now forced to be around other people. They themselves become more liberal because mm. to your point, now they're surrounded by people who are different than them. They're learning what critical thinking looks like beyond like they're very conservative communities, which is why a lot of conservatives are afraid that, you know, if I send my child to school and he comes back gay is because he was surrounded by liberals who made him He was gay. told he was influenced to be that way. Yeah. 
I'm like, I don't oh think that's how it works. No one, no one would choose to have to deal with being an L, a member of the LGBT community in today's society. Like, right. I have to make that decision, right? One to be discriminated against. I don't, I don't yeah. see it happening. And I make that <laughs> argument so often because why would you choose? I just don't get it. Especially like, if you're you black, honestly right? think so. I'm not oppressed enough. Let me add a different <laughs> layer on. Let me make my life slightly worse. So that when I go home for Christmas and Thanksgiving, I got to deal with all of this BS. Exactly. Come on, come on. So the logic. It, it's crazy. But do you think that there is a bridge to gap between conservatives and, and liberals? Because I mean, I just think the fundamental differences are so vast at this point. I'm not sure. But do you think we'll ever get to that point where we will be able to bridge a gap between the two? I think so. You know, um, if, we, if we're honest about like religion in this country, it has been weaponized against folks who are different. Um, and I think if we are going to be literal about some forms of the text, we should be literal about all forms of the text. Yeah. Um, and also look at how the development of the text have evolved over time. That being said, I do think there are opportunities to bridging the gap when you create more spaces and places where people have to interact with folks of a different community, um, have to actually learn to engage with them beyond like their own um, bubble that they exist within. Um, but also I think getting down to the nitty gritty, we actually all value the same thing. We value family, we value health and wealth. We value education oftentimes. And I think um, we've been taught by the, the political systems that have, you know, um, that what we believe is somehow different, but at the heart of it is actually the same. The difference is conservatives oftentimes believe that only they deserve those things. And liberals believe that these are basic human rights that we should in nickel and dime who has access to it, whether or not they have the benefit of being born into a, a rich community or even a medium wealthy community mm -hmm. versus being born into a, a poor society without fully understanding how we've constructed those poor communities to exist. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I don't think conservatives get that liberals are actually fighting for their rights as well. <laughs> it it like blows my mind. Women, if we think about um, if we think about affirmative action, white women benefit from affirmative action way more than any person of color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <gasps> yeah. Check your husband, ma'am. <laughs> Check Check your husband. Husband so for me, I just, I just don't even know the language to change or like what rhetoric to use to really like make the light bulb turn on about with for them. Because even though you're giving us so much negative mm -hmm. energy, we're still fighting for you as well. And I just, I, I, in the conversations that I've had with conservatives on Twitter, on Instagram, you know, our favorite social media arguments, but I just, I don't know what to say to make them realize that no one's trying to take your rights away. Nobody's trying to change how you live, we're just trying to make it so you can live the way that you want and we can live the way that we want and it doesn't affect the other person. Yeah, yeah. And that's and I think that is really hard to do in today's society when there's yeah. so much information, you would have thought that they would have already come to the conclusion themselves. <laughs> right. But I think a part of it is that, you know, for conservative, especially conservatives who are um, white, um, for them to, oftentimes for them to come to that conclusion takes, takes, it takes one admitting that everything you've been taught by your family, your grandparents is wrong. Yeah. And that's hard. It's also yeah. saying what I've learned in the church is oftentimes either not wrong, but it's been used to weaponize against others. Mm -hmm. And two and three, I should say, I now have to admit that the things I have access to have, and the things I've been able to benefit from, I've not earned. 
And that is rooted oftentimes in racism, it's rooted mm. in capitalism, it's rooted in white supremacy. And so, you know, it's hard for people to evolve to that because they're not willing to face the fact that they themselves might have benefited or been a party to those things existing or not existing for communities of color. So when you go into work with organizations, you know, what do you lead with in terms of when you're talking about social impact and activism and allyship? Yeah, it's it's fun. Um, I like because I like making people uncomfortable. I think uncomfortability will get us much closer to solutions than, you know, playing the politically correct version. But a lot of times when I work with companies around social impact, specifically as it relates to engaging impacted communities, I first ask them to figure out like, what is your corporate, like, what is your corporate language? Like, what is your North Star? What is your version of the world that you want to create? And how does that fit into the narrative of what your employees and your customers are existing within, right? It's easy to say, you know, um, we we are an organization that creates um, external hard drives, right? We don't have to, why should we, why should we worry about politics? Well, politics exists in every single thing that we do yeah. from the trains that your employees take on the way to work to the violence that they have to interact with on the way home. And so it's really helping corporations really understand that this is, they exist within this world and they themselves have to speak up and be a part of the conversation. I then ask, you know, how can we design or how can we ensure that you're a part of a conversation that fits your North Star? It doesn't make sense, i.e. for Gillette a few months ago to talk about like women's issues when their main audience is men, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, how can you ensure that you're showing up authentically based on your corporate brand and then what critically can you do, right? So if you are an organization like Dell, it's easy to say, let's just write a check. But really, y'all have technology, you have, you have um, insight and research that can help to inform local communities on how they can be more effective and, and actually utilize the resources that they have. You can donate computers, especially at a time when young people don't have computers and are trying to be educated from home. So really helping them think beyond just giving the monetary giving mm -hmm. of how they can actually be much more impactful based on the internal knowledge within their organizations and then helping them create pathways for their employees to feel like they're a part of the process and mm -hmm. often have access to those volunteer opportunities. But it's, it's really about, you know, allowing them to be authentic in their own voice and helping them figure out like, wow, what based on these menu of options do you think it fits the fits the best for your corporate um setting in this moment right so a lot of it is just like you know we're just learning being transparent with the public we're trying to gauge more on this issue or it's saying we're going to come out with revamping our whole diversity and inclusion program mm -hmm. or now giving to these charities but it it's helping them figure out that journey for them that makes the most sense without creating a cookie cutter um band-aid for all companies because it it's just not authentic and it's not long lasting. Right. Have you ever been extremely surprised by the lack of awareness from a company or organization that you've worked with? I'm not surprised, but it exists. Um, <laughs> and I say I'm not surprised because, you know, if I look about my Twitter feed or my Instagram feed, it's hella pro-black, it's hella progressive. And that is a world in which I've curated. We've all curated our own world and the, right. the information we consume. And so I think it's just pushing people to now realize that the bubble, the network that they created for themselves isn't a realistic view of the world. Um, but yeah, sometimes I look at folks and I'm just like, well, that's incorrect. And here's why, <laughs> or right. that's hella problematic. And here's why. And so, and I, and I realize what I, what I say is 
the most surprising, um, and I learned this over time, is not that people are saying these things or doing these things oftentimes out of malicious thought or intent. It's honestly because they don't know any better. Yeah. And it's because of the things that they've been taught. Um, it's also the lies we've all been told about each other that are just rooted in false and false narrative. And it's created by those who have the most power to ensure that we're bickering with each other versus requiring them to do more from the top. The reason I ask that is because I am surprised sometimes when I see companies that they think they're well-intentioned and they just completely miss the mark. Like I posted this on my Twitter and, and on my Facebook, but the other day there was a Black History Month uh, like performance recital at Oberlin Conservatory and they were celebrating, I don't know if you saw this, but they were celebrating Black artistry and all five of the artists playing the music were white. And this was, <laughs> you roll your eyes, I know. But it's like, to me, I'm like, okay, you literally had nobody in the room that made this poster before you printed it, before you decided to post this all over and to advertise for this recital, celebrating Black artistry, to tell you that this wasn't a good idea to have five white artists on the, on, on, on the marketing materials. That's, that's what I mean. Like, it's 2021 and we're still doing this. What I will also say too, I think you will be surprised. We oftentimes say in the movement space, this is why they need to hire a black person, or this is why they need to have more diverse staff. The problem is in many of those spaces, there actually is one black person that says, that gives the okay that this is mm. an mm. And not saying that we should blame that one black person, because the problem is when you put one black person in the position to now tell you everything for the entire diverse community, and they don't have, and, and they're fearful of pushing back because they might lose their job, that doesn't set them up for success, which yeah. is why I'm always skeptical when companies hire that black woman to lead HR or diversity. And yet she has a no budget, no staff. You're setting them up for failure. Um, and so a part of it is like. It means a survival almost. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. y'all getting your affirmations from one one person and assuming that that person can speak on behalf of the entire black community. And it's and it's incorrect and wrong. And yeah, I mean, everybody has those type of people, I should say, have that one quintessential black person. They're like, oh, well, they said it's OK or they think this or that. But, you know, most of the times, at least in my experience, that person is like Candace Owens or like Ben Carson. And they really are not the best representation at all. I think, you know, people that whose hearts are in the a right place like I feel like no we're not a monolith but if we're talking to you for you know in general you're probably giving a good landscape of what the black community stands for there are certain people that just don't do that yeah. and that's who that person usually is and what your one friend tells you is okay you have to realize that, that that person has a relationship with you there's ways in which I interact with my white friends that I'm quite sure they wouldn't interact with a random black person that they engage with because we have an established relationship and so I think people also need to realize that you're getting advice from someone you have an established relationship with that may not be a representation of how every Black person you interact with wants to be interacted with. So let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, one of the biggest controversial topics currently going on in the country is the minimum wage. Girl. <laughs> and I know you've had some, some, some pointed views about that, and I have agreed with a lot of the things you've posted, but I'd love to hear what your view is on that and what you think the country needs to do. 
Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, first of all, I don't make a minimum wage and there's nothing about how much I made that ever will make me stop saying that people don't deserve more money. Right. Um, and I say that because if we look at the trajectory of inflation as a former business student, um, we know that people should be actually making closer to $25 an hour. And so we're really bickering in this country on whether or not we should be raising the minimum wage to a livable salary. So that way that people in cities across the country if they're working 40 hours a week and they're working full time, they can actually pay their rent. Like that makes sense to me is that yeah. someone who is working full time can pay their rent, keep food on the table and potentially save for college or save for retirement. Mm -hmm. And in many places around the country, especially in like cities like New York, DC, Chicago, LA, people are barely getting by. Um, there was a study that came out shortly after um, a few years ago that talked about how the vast majority of Americans couldn't afford a $200 emergency, which is scary as hell that we have so many, we have millions of people on the brink of un, um, on, on, on poverty mm -hmm. because they, they are working in careers that just doesn't pay enough. And so for me, um, I think we should be raising the minimum wage. I don't feel like this is a discussion that um, we should be looking to the corporate raiders on to give us advice on, um, because oftentimes the argument is that we're going to lose jobs. Well, yeah. unfortunately, we have people working four and five jobs. So if we lose a few, but we raise the minimum wage, I think we'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. Yeah. I think it balance out because I just don't know how politicians can look at communities around the country and think it's okay that people can work their asses off to the bone to serve and provide and work in jobs that are oftentimes that we deemed, especially over the last month, I mean, last 12 months are essential, but yet they don't deserve an essential pay. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a believer that we should be moving not just from a livable wage, but a thriving wage yeah. where people can actually, you know, enjoy living and thriving in our society and not feel like they're constantly working only to experience an emergency that knocks them right back down on their ass. Right. And it's interesting you say that because I was so shocked by wh whoever they surveyed, but by seeing that $1,400 stimulus check would actually significantly help so many people. And I'm like, well, that's a problem in itself, because if that little amount mm -hmm. would make such a huge difference for so many millions of people in this country, we got to look at the root of the problem. Because that yeah. $1,400 in LA is like... Uh, girl in new york what what is that you know what i mean so well, that's, that's what i'm curious so the people, questioning i'm, yeah. I'm curious in the questioning for that because i'm are we saying for without 14 is it either or right 1400 or no 1400 of course 1400 is going to be life-changing but realistically we know the vast majority of people who are behind our rent are behind up to fifteen thousand dollars yeah right yeah. and as of now we're currently still kicking the can down the road and so it, it's mind-boggling that we are the richest country in the world, the quote-unquote most developed, the most powerful country in the world, and yet we can't even duplicate what our allies are doing for their own communities, right? Yeah. Wuhan, China is fully open because they shut it down, gave people stimulus, gave people um, access to food and medical. Um, other countries, Canada, gave people $2,000. New Zealand, like, New yeah. New Zealand, shut yeah. shit down. And we can't even get people to wear a face mask. yeah. Like this yeah. idea of democracy and like individuality has got freedom. Gotten, yeah, and, and freedom is, <laughs> I think it's people are, are are more concerned with that wearing a face mask, but not more concerned with the fact that the government is saying you can't have access to your money. Like the government doesn't just randomly find this money on the side of the road. It's all of our money. And we should have so much more say on how it plays into our own recovery. And also like corporations, 
Jeff Bezos paid no taxes in 2020. I'm a huge fan of Amazon. I just placed an order. But like, Jeff Bezos ain't on the assembly line. I'm a fan <laughs> of Amazon. I'm not a fan of him. No, I'm not. He's not anyone's leader at all. And the fact that he paid no taxes None. and he made billions of dollars during a time where people were literally becoming homeless and couldn't yeah. afford to keep their lights on and feed their kids is disgusting. Yeah. So we're, but we're still debating on whether or not people deserve $15 an hour is mind boggling. It's wild. Do you think it should be different based on the region that you live in? Or do you think it should just be a blanket amount across the country? I definitely think we should, we should nationally raise the minimum wage, but I also think there needs to be room for, um, for, adjustments based on um the your where you live especially mm -hmm. like when you look at cities like san francisco new york and la like it is so expensive to even yeah. my cousin lives in san francisco she has a one-bedroom apartment for her and three of her her husband and her three kids because and she pays like twenty two thousand twenty two hundred dollars a month mm. like that is ridiculous in philadelphia you can get a whole house for like eight hundred nine hundred dollars to rent and so it's just not realistic um, yeah. for folks to have the same minimum um, minimum wage in one state to another without yeah. making that adjustments for cost of living. Yeah, it's it's wild, and I think you're the one that posted it. That's saying it's interesting that like rich people are saying. You said something like rich people are making decisions about what poor people should do with their own money or something like that. Oh yeah, like the idea that you know people are always talking about you know if you. It's the LLC Twitter. Like, if you just invest this amount of money, you can open an LLC, create a business, and then you, you can move your entire family out of poverty. But, like, y'all ain't talking to the government that way. Right. Y'all not telling the government to cut you a check as if this is not your money. And right. people always talk right. about it as a handout, but it's not a handout. It's yeah. us It's us dipping into our savings because that's what taxes is supposed to do. Yeah. Create a yeah. savings for a fallout like this. And we're yeah. just... We're so, we're letting them create the narrative for us. And that's why I did, is, I mean, people were wilding out about the whole mask thing. And it's ridiculous that like a country that says it's a Christian nation, which it's not, wouldn't wear a mask to protect other people. But that's a whole <laughs> different podcast and conversation. But <laughs> I did have sympathy for the people that didn't want to stop working or wear masks or whatever, because they felt like they had no choice. But they were, their anger and their frustration was completely directed at the wrong people. Yeah. Nobody was looking at the government. It's like, no, they need to be taking care of you because people, if they were taken care of financially the way that so many other countries were, I guarantee people would have no issue staying home for to just beat this damn thing, you know? And even so many it's a year later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I live in Harlem and there's a dog community and I've met so many people through this dog community because I got my dog during COVID. But there's like four business owners who own restaurants and all of them said the same thing. Like we would be happy to shut down. If, if we were getting a stimulus, right? Or if our employees were getting a stimulus, but it's hard to like lay off six and seven people who can't afford to live without that income. And I do agree, like if the vast majority of people receive the stimulus, they would be happy to stay home. Yeah. They would be happy to stay home. But when people yeah. have to decide whether or not they feed their kids, please, yeah. please. It's like non-negotiable and I get it. I get it. It's frustrating, but I, I'm... I'm grateful that for the scientists that are working so hard with the vaccines and i'm not surprised that there was no vaccine rollout before biden came into uh <laughs> to the white for house america is the trojan <laughs> horse of the world we we are we look very pretty in theory but we're totally you're like but up. nope <laughs> 
So as we move forward, what do you think the main priority should be for this administration? I mean, there are things from healthcare, minimum wage, obviously education, but in your perspective, what do you think should be at the top of their priority list? I think overall is that we need to not prioritize partisanship for this um, while throwing racial justice and equity under the bus. Mm. Um, you know, we brought out, the Democratic Party brought out the, the millions of people, people who had never voted before because they believed that this administration would be different than the last. And if we sacrifice the idea of teaming up with folks across the aisle who literally created and tried to um, form a coup, coup of this country, um, we're not going to win in two years. So I think, yes, do not sacrifice people, poor people, mm. minorities, do not sacrifice the working class, do not sacrifice women and LGBTQI people for the sake of partisanship, um, especially when we have the majority in the House and the Senate. In addition to that, I would say, you know, we have to center any policy and practice we do within this country with pe poor people and people of color at the heart of uh, at the solution of change. Because the idea that if we give more opportunity, more tax breaks to the wealthy, it will trickle down to poor people has never worked. It's a lie. It's literally a lie. It has never worked in this country. And so the, the investments, the solutions and opportunities should be where the most marginalized and the most vulnerable are in our community. And those, as those people rise, as those people move into the middle class, then of course it will go into other communities and opportunities. But I think we need to center impacted communities first mm -hmm. and we need to not sacrifice any of our constituents, any of our, anyone within our base for the sake of pretending to partner with the Republican party who has shown to be treacherous. They don't care. Idiots, <laughs> they just don't care. Who don't give a fuck. No. And, yeah. and it's so funny because Republicans are always talking about, well, you know, you need to bring unity whenever a Democrat wins, but they never talk about unity when they win. They got everything they wanted for. Um, and so, yeah, so the administration needs to realize that we're watching, we're waiting, we're going to continue to hold them accountable um, because it's just, it's just not right. It's not. It's just not it's right. Not, it's not. And then for people that, you know, want to get involved but don't know where to start, what would you suggest? I would say two things. Educate yourself. Um, and this is, this is a lifelong journey. I mean, I didn't know about, when I started my activism, I didn't know anything about immigrants' rights or dreamers until I met a friend and realized he had lived in this country for 23 years and still was not able to get his citizenship. Mm. Um, so I would say definitely educate yourself, expand your network. If you look around and you realize all your friends are white, or you look around and realize all your friends are conservatives, you need to expand your network because unless you're hearing from people who don't look like you, don't come from your community, you're gonna believe the lies that other people tell you. And the third thing I'll say is, you know, the hardest conversations we can have are actually the ones at the dinner table. So if you're not if you're not promoting something different to your family members, to your friends, why do I want you at the march? Why do I want you on the podium? Why do I want you talking about these things on Twitter and Instagram if you can't even have these conversations with your family and friends? Or you allow your family and friends to say things that you know is inherently wrong and you stay silent. Um, so those are will be the top three things that I would tell people to do that doesn't necessarily require for them to, you know, become an activist full time or to, um, you know, change their job description. But it's something that can live in each and every one of us and that we can do every single day. Sound advice. I love it. Let everyone know where they can follow you and keep up with your work. Um, I am Jamira Burley on all media platforms. So Instagram and Twitter at Jamira Burley. And my website is www.jamiraburley.com.
Awesome. Thank you so much for chatting with me. You are so inspiring. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> There's so much drama. These people are a mess. <laughs> I'm like, if America is a reality show, I, I just wish, I don't wish, but if I was in, in another country, I would be watching America like it was a reality show. You would be like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Did you watch Death to 2020? Yes, it was so good. Because <laughs> that's the the woman. I think she was Irish. That she was watching America like it was a reality show, and it was hilarious. Because I absolutely agree. I would be doing the same thing. And in terms of characters, I do think that, like the Republicans are the most interesting characters. Like I would be eating popcorn. Like oh my god, what are they gonna do next? You know, be like married at first sight. Be like Chris. Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. What what other shit are they? Gonna what are you gonna do next? Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for sitting in and chatting with me. And to the listeners, make sure you follow Jamira and all of the great things that she's doing. And make sure you subscribe to We Need to Talk on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.